If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes. If you have a church Bible, that's going to be page 556. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning, or this afternoon. Already messed up, huh? <laughs> All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. To give you the... The end before we start, um, I like to give sermon summaries. And so if I could summarize the message that we're going to hear this afternoon, I would summarize it like this. Crooked things uh, in the world, in this world, are far better than straight things presently. And they are far better because they have the power to expose the crooked nature of our soul, and make us long for God, our Redeemer. And so we're going to be looking at that in in this text this morning, starting in verse 1, and we're going to work our way down to verse 13, where we're going to try to get our main focus on there. Um, But we're going to walk through this passage this afternoon. And so let's start here in chapter 7, verse 1 of the book of Ecclesiastes. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In verse 13. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. This is God's word to us this afternoon. It may seem a bit confusing, especially as we are reading this. You look at it and think, why? How is this first thing better than this second thing? Why does God make crooked things. Prayer is that we don't quickly overlook or pass through uh, texts like these when we read. Um, May God illuminate our hearts. May we have understanding and to be very careful to heed the instructions that we, we read in his word. If you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, this particular Section seems and reads a little bit differently than the rest of the book. 
right? Everything in the book, you see how Koalath, the, the preacher, uh, who I believe is King Solomon, is, is applying his wisdom to try to understand the things in this world. He's applying his wisdom to, to kind of measure out and understand the human experience and try to understand what is the meaning of it all. What is the meaning of it all? And, and if you summarize this book in a single word, you probably come with the word vanity. Right? Vanity. Vanities, vanities. It's futile. Some translations, I think, say a little bit too strongly, but they say it's meaningless. Um, to elaborate on that, we see that the things under the world, under the sun, um, are, are, are full of, of vanities. And, and you read this passage here, and it seems a little bit enigmatic, maybe a little bit paradoxical. Um, it's contrary to what you would expect. Why is a good name, like in verse 1, why is that better than, than precious ointment? Why is the day of death, why is that better than the day of birth? Why should I rather go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting? Why are these good? Why is this, this better? The style of writing also seems a little bit out of place. We almost want to take this passage and kind of cut it out and just maybe make a 30-second chapter of Proverbs, because uh, these are more like proverbial statements, but then that would mess up our reading plan. You know, we read one proverb a day, so then maybe we don't do that. Uh, but it seems a little odd, a little out of place. Why is this in the middle of a, of a text, a book, that really is sort of a, a preaching, a sermon from this preacher? Why is this here? Why should we consider crooked things to be better than straight things, like I had mentioned earlier? Let's try to answer those questions uh, this afternoon. Um, start verse one. A good name, and, and as, we, as we walk through this text, I, I've kind of grouped everything into four areas. And so the first thing is, um, in verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment. This, this sort of echoes what we find actually in Proverbs 22.1. Another uh, of Solomon's writings we see here, a good name, is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. He's, he's, he's essentially saying the exact same thing. The comparison that is being made here is that you would rather, and you should rather, seek a good reputation, a good character, as opposed to riches. You know, precious ointments in these days would have been very costly, very expensive. You think about in the time of when Christ was, was living and he raised Lazarus from the dead and he's hanging out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he's anointed with a precious ointment. And what does Judas say? Like, why did, why did you do that? Why did you take this, this ointment? It could have been sold. This perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Why didn't, why didn't you just do that? We could have collected it and made a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's about a year's worth of wages. And here, in this statement, we see a good name is much better than riches. It's much better. It's, it's what we should seek after. Reputation over riches, character over wealth. Believers... Christians, we, we want to walk in sanctification. We want to walk in holiness. We want to be good ambassadors of Christ. But the world is not concerned with those sort of things. 
This is upside down to them. Christians, we as Christians, we want to, in a way, we want to smell better. We want to have a better aroma. This precious ointment would have, you know, made the the things around it smell nice. It would have been a a sweet-smelling perfume that would have filled the air, filled the the place around them. But we, we are looking for something different. We want to smell better, not just physically. We don't want to look better outwardly. We want to smell better spiritually. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. We have a scent that is noticeable to the world. Those who are saved and those who are perishing, this, this precious, precious ointment would have been smelling, uh, sweet smelling. Um, you would notice it. And, and what we want is when we are walking in this world, people notice the sweet aroma of Christ richly in us. They see our character. They see that it is, it is good, which is contrary, like I mentioned earlier, to what the world would say. I mean, if you, if you were to ask the world, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a ton of money or a good name? What do you think would be the, the response? I mean, think about it maybe for yourself. What, what is it that you truly want? What is it that you desire? This, the proverb exposes something within us, and I think it's a good thing because it's drawing us to the better thing. It's, it's exposing in our hearts. Maybe we're seeking after the wrong things, and we need to look inward, examine that, and then look upward, look to Christ. Do we desire to live a sanctified life more than anything else, more than riches or wealth, more than anything else in this world? Which then leads us to the next sort of interesting statement that we find here in the second half of verse 1, which says, The day of death is better than the day of birth. Now these are, these are I would say, you can say in, in a way, they're both good things. Um, the day of birth is definitely a good thing. I know when my son was born, I, was, I wasn't you know, sad. <laughs> I didn't hold him in my arms. I'm like, man, wish you were still in your mom's womb. I, I still wish you still had the belly and carrying around. No, I was, I was happy. I was joyful. It was a good thing. Uh, but it, it says here the day of death is, is better than the day of birth. Paul kind of says the same thing in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For me, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he kind of expands upon this struggle that he's facing between living and between dying. He, if he lives, then he can, he can have more fruitful labor among the people that he's serving, the people he's ministering to. But if, if he dies, that's far better for he can be with Christ. But he's, he's still struggling. He says, I'm, I'm hard pressed between the two. So they're both good. The day of birth is good. The, the life that we have here on earth, in this world, under the sun, life under the sun is good. But the day of death is, is better. 
We can take that in a couple of different ways. We can take it in a really pessimistic way. We can say, man, our life is just rotten in this world. It's, it's so hard. It's difficult. It's full of pain. It's full of suffering. It's full of trials and persecutions. It, it'd, be, it'd be good. I, I long for the day of death when all of that will cease. And so you can maybe take a sort of a pessimistic view and say, okay, then if I look at it in that light, then yeah, it's better. I think in more an optimistic way, I think more in a, a biblical way, a Christian way, we, we see that the day of our death brings us really into a day of life where we can be with our Father eternally, forever. And that's just our physical death. We can think of, you know, about our, our spiritual death, when we're dead in our sins. And, and when we, we go to the cross, when we, we look to Christ, we, we bury, we, we kill our old flesh, our old self, and we are made alive. That day of death spiritually is, is a good thing, where we, we kill our old flesh. It's a, we see it's a, it's a good thing. We see a similar idea in verse 8. Better is the end of the thing than its beginning. I think we can kind of relate and understand that. It's, you know, if you start a project, no one wants to just keep continually doing the project. We want the project to end eventually. Um, if you do uh, an athletic event, you're really wanting to win. You want the end. Um, if you're even spectating or watching an athletic event, I mean, just watching like you know, baseball or something, uh, I don't like, I don't understand baseball. Uh, but people watch baseball and that takes hours and hours. You have to stretch in the middle of the game. The people have to stretch. It doesn't make sense. Uh, you want there to be an end and you can say, yeah, clearly that end is better than the beginning. Going to college, starting college, that's good. Um, but you don't want to stay in college forever. Hopefully. Um, you want to graduate. The end is better than the beginning. For a believer, yeah, being reborn spiritually is better than just being born physically. Dying with Christ is much better than living in the flesh. And when we're around death, it reminds us of the fallenness of our soul. It reminds us of that, that truth. It reminds us of our urgent need that we have for a Savior, for a Redeemer. That's a good thing to be reminded of. It's something that we all need, and not just us as believers. It's what the world truly needs. And then we see in verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. The picture here we're, we're seeing, if you can imagine this, it's, he's, he's saying it's better to, to go to a, a funeral than it is to go to a party. Which, again, is another statement where we, at first glance, we read something like this and kind of scratch our heads like, well, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that one. I, I like to dance. I like to you know, have fun. I like to laugh. I, like to, I definitely like to eat. Um, I'd rather go to this house of feasting, to, this, to these parties. Why is it a good thing for me to go to a house of mourning. And not just a good thing, but why is it better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting? I think it's, it is good because 
our, our physical experience during those particular times, when we're, when we're in a house of mourning, in those moments, our physical experience, our physical emotions are, are more aligned, you can say, to our spiritual reality. Even those in the world, um, when they are brought to a funeral and they feel that remorse and they see the, 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 the fragility of life itself, they are now becoming more sensitive to the reality of their spiritual state. And that is good. I would say, like the preacher, that is better. They realize that they are spiritually sad. That they're spiritually empty, that they are spiritually in need of salvation. When we encounter death, we all are reminded of that reality. And that's a good thing. That presses us deeper into our Redeemer. That presses us into having a greater dependence on our Savior. We're reminded of our destitute state, the, the brevity of this life that we live, the weakness that we have in our flesh. We're reminded that we will all die, and it is appointed for man to live once, to die, and then to face judgment. We are reminded that we must walk um, to, to steal from another preacher wisely in this world wisely in this world, making the best use of our time, knowing that these days are dark. To make it even more simple, we are to, and maybe you've heard this growing up, we are to seek basic instructions before leaving earth, you know, B-I-B-L-E, the Bible. We seek basic instructions before leaving earth. We need to go to the word of God, see what it says about God, see what it says about us, See what it says that we ought to do, how we are to live, how we are to worship. In the day of mourning, in the house of mourning, we are brought to that. Jesus put it like this in Luke 6. Um, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall later mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets, to the false prophets. When we have a physical richness, a fullness, a laughter, there's joy, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But what it can do is it can blind us to our spiritual reality. It can blind us to the fact that we are really incredibly poor people that we are incredibly needy people. We aren't self-sufficient. We aren't God. When things are going well, it can cause us to forget. Think of the, the rich young ruler who had a lot of money. He goes to, to our Lord. He says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And what, what does Jesus tell that man? He, he looks in his heart and he sees this this thing that he's holding on to. He, he sees what he treasures more. He says, take all your possessions, gather it all together, sell it, and don't just hold that money, give it to the poor. And what does he reply back with? 
Or what do we see happens with the young man? He says in verse 22 of Matthew 19, it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I mean, parties, birthdays, baby showers, these are good things. I don't want you to misunderstand me and say, hey, you know, we got to twist these events. We got to make them sad. Like, you know, like be a wet blanket. If you see a party going on, I need you to go there. I need you to step in. I need you to, you know, stop it somehow. It's not at all what I'm saying. Um, because those are good things and we should celebrate those things. Um, but, but they don't generally remind us. They don't generally cause us to think about our sin. They don't cause us to think about our need. They don't cause us to, to think of God's glory. Sorrow is good for us. And, and, and later on in, in verse 3, it says, Sorrow is better than laughter. Again, kind of echoing what we see in verse 2. But then notice what happens. What is the, the ultimate end result of it? It says the sadness of the face, our sorrow, is made glad. It's made glad. If we were to do a careful examination of our hearts and our lives, when we're at ease, when we're most comfortable, do we find that we have a greater dependence on God? Do you ever find that when things are going well, it's easy for us to be complacent, to forget God, to forget to actively be putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no plans to satisfy the flesh, gratifying its desires? Do we find that in ourselves? I find that too often in my own life. It's too easy for us to forget God. I don't know if you read Proverbs 30. One of my, my favorite prayers, actually, in all of scriptures is found in Proverbs uh, chapter 30. Um, it's Agur's prayer, and he talks um, about two things that he requests from the Lord. One, that he that falsehood and lies would be kept far from him. But then the second thing is that he would not have too little because then he would curse his name, curse God's name, but, but then that he wouldn't have too much. He prays, Lord, don't give me too much or I might forget you. When we go to the house of feasting, when we're with plenty, when we're comfortable, we can praise God for that. We praise him for that. He's, he's, he's been gracious and merciful and kind to us. But we must guard ourselves and be careful lest we forget him. And when we're in the house of mourning, I think, I think we're drawn more acutely to that fact that we need him. The, the, the second or third thing um, that we want to, I want to consider is in verse uh, 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. Let me pose a question to you. If you were sick, if you were ill, would you want to know? I think clearly we would all want to know. Um, why? Because we, we want to fix it. We want to restore what is, is weak. We want to heal what is broken. But we can't do that if we don't know. That's why people, um, not me, I just don't like doctors, but people go to doctors, they get annual checkups. 
Because they want to know, they want to take preventative measures so they don't get sick. Or if they are sick, they want to go to the doctors to get healing. They want to know exactly what is wrong with them so that they can be made whole. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 5. This is the reason why it is better for us to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of, of fools. This, this helps elongate our lives. It helps us to even live better because um, these rebukes, these corrections that we receive from, from wise people expose darkness. They expose sin dwelling within us. It exposes the death that is in us. A fool's song may be pleasurable, may seem nice, but it doesn't do anything to reveal our deep need. It, it can't. You know, this morning we, we sang a hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? You know, thinking of that first stanza, I wrote this down. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? How convicting are those words? Do we blush to speak his name? Do we fear to own his cause? Even, even hymns like these, um, written by wise men, can still reach out and convict our hearts. And where we are astray, it can rebuke us. It can correct us. Now consider the words of any worldly song that you may hear on, on the radio or anywhere else. Um, do they do the same thing? The counsel and correction of a wise person is, is so much, so much better. The words and the laughter of fools here, we see later on in verse uh, 6, are compared to the crackling of thorns, the laughter of fools. It says this is all, this is all so vanity. This is not something that you find comfort or delight in. It maybe comes for a time, but like the crackling of a thorns, it's there and then vanishes. It's gone. It's quick to just be um, extinguished. Now, what we really need to sustain us, what we really need for us to live rightly, to live a life of, of wisdom, is, is, is um, these rebukes. We need wisdom. We need to seek after wisdom over folly. In, in Proverbs uh, chapter 9, we see a little bit of what folly looks like, the calling of a folly, and we see the end of folly. It's just to read this. In, in verse 13 um, to 18, it says, the, wo- the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of a house. She takes a seat on the high places of town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks any sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her, de- that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. When we gain wisdom, we gain life. We avoid death. We gain an inheritance. In verse 12, it talks about we gain protection. It's described as almost like the protection of money, which then I want us to get quickly to verse 13, um, where it says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? It's almost a little bit of a different thought than what we had read previously and what we had looked at in these um, verses that precede it. But I, I see a connection here being that we have 
here, um, an orientation of the heart um, as being the connection piece. In each of the four areas that we had looked at before, what we see is that they draw us to God. They really draw us to God. We can see that these things are far better because they, they draw us and point us to him. They, they change the trajectory of our path uh, from inward or other-centered to him. But sometimes in our walk, we're going to face crooks. And I don't mean evil people with you know masks on. Um, I mean crooked things, trials, pains, suffering. We're going to face those things. And what I want you to think about here is, in, in, in considering verse 13 and even everything that we looked at, if you have two things, no matter how bad one thing seems to be, if one of them draws you closer to Jesus, that is the better thing. If it gets you to think about the things that pertain to God, then clearly that is the best thing. If it causes you to ponder spiritual things, then it is better. And such is the same in, in verse 13, where we're called to consider the works of God. So when we consider even the crooked things in our life, the difficulties, the pains that we face, we can see that they are not vanity. They are not meaningless. They are the work of God. And so we, we, can't, we don't approach these sort of situations and times in our lives and say, well, I mean, I guess God just is trying to fix something over here, and so he's just causing this inadvertently, and you know, he, he didn't see that this event would happen. No, that's, that's not at all what ha- what's happening, because we know that God is sovereign, that God is in control. We know that God is, is most wise, he is most holy, he is most loving, he is most lo- uh, merciful, most gracious, he's most good. And in all his works, they are the same. And so when we come to crooked times in our lives, we can see, Lord, you are in it. You are working it for good, and you're using it in a particular way to draw us to you. That's why we can say, when the world says, that's upside-down thinking. Why is a good name better than riches? Like, take the money. It doesn't make sense. A day of birth is clearly better than the day of death. The world will say, go to the party, go to the feasting. Why go to this house of mourning? Why have sorrow when you can have laughter? The world sees it as as upside down. We learn in verse 13, I mean, we may think that this is upside down. Maybe the the world, life under the sun, may perceive this as upside down. But it's upside down for his purposes. And those things are better. So we should not try to straighten those things out. It asks the question, it's a rhetorical question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? He's actually answered this question already. He answered this question in chapter 1. In verse 15, he says, what is crooked, he says, cannot be made straight. It cannot be made straight. And so when we come to this verse, um, in chapter 7, we read, who can make straight what he has made crooked? We're like, oh, wait, I remember that. He's just said, nobody can do it. It cannot, in fact, be made straight. This requires... A wisdom, a wisdom that is not from this world. We may see that the decrees of God may be painful at times. 
but we, we can rest assured knowing that they are, they are good. They seem backward, they may seem backwards at times, but they're still good. You know, crooked things in this, in this world, like I mentioned earlier, they are better than straight things. And they're better because they have the power to expose the crooked nature of our souls and they have the power to make us long for God, our Redeemer. Crooked things are not sinful things. Here, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about morally crooked things, implying in any way that God is the author of evil. God is not the author of sin. What he's talking about here, like I've been saying, are trials that we encounter. And so, they're eternally good, because God himself is good. And his works are good. If you go to um, previous uh, chapter in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, you see in, in chapter 3, in verse 11, he says, He has made everything. God has made everything beautiful in its time. A lot of times we look at the things that are occurring in this world and, and we don't see them as beautiful. But what does he say? He says, no, God has made it beautiful. But then he continues, he says, also he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning and the end. We don't know exactly what God is doing. We may not fully understand it, but we know that it is right, it is perfect, it is beautiful. And we, 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 we can go to the Lord, we can pray to him for wisdom. He says he will give us that wisdom. We're called to consider, to look intently at his work. But why does, why does God bring crooked things in our life? Maybe that's the next question we ask when we come to a passage like this. Why, why doesn't God just make straight what he has made crooked? Why not even have no crooked things? God, why do you allow us to go in these times? I'll be uh, brief here um, in these points. Um, and there's three things that I want us to, to consider why these are, are good things, why they, they can be a comfort to our souls, knowing that God doesn't just make everything straight. And I, I kind of stole this from the 1689 Confession. Um, one is it corrects us in our sins and makes us see more clearly the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of our hearts. We can see in us the sinfulness that we have and that we bear. When we go through crooked times, we, we, we have it exposed more clearly to us. Maybe we, were, we thought we could just play with this, this. It's just a little sin. But Proverbs 6 tells us, can a man carry fire next to his bosom and not be burned? Let's quote Odd Thomas. He said, what's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. Maybe, perhaps, we've created an idol and the crooks in our life, when we experience um, loss, they expose it to us. They expose this sin. In the worst sense, it may expose in us a hypocrisy. Maybe we're living as though we are living in Christ when truly we, we never have. And I, I pray that's, that's, that's known here in this room today. That we aren't living falsely believing, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that 
we are living for Christ. I pray that if and when we do encounter crooks in our, our life, that they'll expose that if that is the case. That it'll cause us to, to run to the cross in repentance. The second thing it does is it brings us to a closer and more constant dependence on him. For a believer, it may, like I said, reveal an idol. It, it may reveal something or someone that we've we found to be our source of security, of satisfaction, of significance, of salvation. And the crooked things in our lives is God's way. It's God's means of exposing and making our eyes see clearly that we've placed our our source of safety, significance, satisfaction, salvation in the wrong things. And we need to come back to him like the prodigal son who, who left the father and had to be utterly broken. He had to first endure all sorts of, of suffering and loss before he could recognize the goodness of the father. Perhaps that's what it does. It brings us to a closer and more constant dependence on the goodness of God. And thirdly, it makes us more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other and just holy ends. Sort of a catch-all right there at the end, but it makes us more watchful. We're more vigilant to look around and, and see any of the pitfalls that we may fall into. It reminds us of just how much we need the Lord and just, and just how far we can go from his presence if left to ourselves. And so we are watchful, which is a good thing. And like I said before, if you have two things and if one draws you closer to, to, to Jesus, that's the better thing. So when we consider the work of God, we can see, yeah, he'll, he'll sometimes bring us into the crooked things. And our, our, our job, our response is not to try to make it straight. We can't, first of all, but our response it shouldn't be, let, let me try to fix this. They're, they're, they're drawing us to him. You know, if God is, is most wise, holy, loving, merciful, good, which he is, and if he's, if he's the one who's bringing these things into our lives, which he is, why would we want to change it? What would we think would be better than what he has decreed and is providentially working out in our lives. If, if you're going through crooks in your lot right now, I, I mean, I echo, echo the encouragement that we had this morning to, to see how God is, is in it, how God is working, how God is ultimately working and is going to make all things new. I want us to remember that. I want us to long for that day. And I think when we do so, we'll be able to delight in the crooked things. We can delight in them because we can see that they expose to us our sinfulness and they'll draw us to our Savior. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we know that you are the good Father, and we know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. 
And yet, in, in the difficult times in our lives, in times of trial and pain and suffering, it's hard for us to see that. Lord, help us to gain clarity. Lord, help us not to work against you. Help us to, to bear humility and to endure in those times, growing deeper in dependence of you, growing stronger in our faith, bearing our burden, walking through these times and living in a way where the world will see it and bring you glory and praise. And we know that we can do it because it is your Son who is sustaining us through it all. And so, Lord, help us to, to abide in you, to draw near to you. It's in your Son's name we pray.